Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Today, we're speaking about a business that might not qualify as a traditional media company, but it does attract millions of people to its content every day. And I, for one, am a huge, huge fan. The business is called Flight Radar 24, and I'm delighted to be joined by its CEO, Frederick Lindahl. Flight Radar 24 started as a hobby in 2006 when two Swedes were looking for a way to boost traffic to their price comparison website. As plane enthusiasts, they installed receivers on the roofs of their homes to track planes over Stockholm, and they set up a map for others to see which planes were overhead. The side project soon took over, though, and became the main venture, and the company's attention shifted to tracking planes ever since. Enter Frederick, who joined in 2012 and, as his first assignment, incorporated Flight Radar 24. The business has gone from strength to strength since then and is now the clear leader in flight tracking globally. If you download their app or go to their website, you'll see a map of the world with thousands of little yellow planes across it. Click on any plane and you'll get a picture of that exact plane, where it's coming from, where it's going to, plus a ream of other information you just didn't know that you needed, like how old the plane is, how fast it's going, etc. The stats are wildly impressive. They track around 250,000 flights every day, and they've got over 4 million daily users. Their app, which tops most charts, has been downloaded 75 million times. Perhaps the most impressive fact, though, is that they lean on their community to help track all of those planes. Their network of 40,000 receivers is controlled in large part by hobbyists who just want to help out. As you can imagine, all of that rolls up into a great business, which generated nearly $20 million in pre-tax profit last year. We get into the whole story and how the business has grown in this discussion. Matt joins me at the end for a debrief. Please enjoy this conversation with Frederick Lindahl. So Frederick, I'm really excited for this conversation. Flight Radar 24 is a product I've used for many, many years. It's probably my dad's favorite app as well, which is um, he'll be thrilled about this episode. It attracts a lot of attention and eyeballs. So I'm really excited to kind of go behind the curtain of the business itself, how it came to be, how it works, how you think about it as the CEO. And on the surface, it's a very easy business to explain. You track planes in the air and you allow people like me watch planes above me in the sky. But the complexity to achieve that at scale must be enormous. So I'd love to start with kind of the nuts and bolts of how do you track 250,000 flights a day and then display them on an app and in a browser that works seamlessly. It seems faster than Google Maps, which kind of feels unbelievable to me. Yeah. So the foundation to doing that is our network of 40,000 plus uh, radio receivers spread out all over the world, hosted by volunteers in basically all corners of the world. So that's where it starts. And then they in turn pick up signals from aircraft and uh, send it to our network and then push it out to the apps and the website. So theoretically, the plane has a transponder or something sending a signal out and anyone could pick this up. It's an available signal that anyone could pick up and then you just capture the information and present it. Yeah, it, that's in the vast majority of the cases, that's what's going on. Yes, it's like a broadcast signal, so it's public. Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the big inflection points with your business was when you opened up the receivers and built the network using the audience that you had built to that point. So at a certain stage, and I think it started in Stockholm, where you're just monitoring the skies above Stockholm. And then you said, actually, if we want to build this bigger, we need help from other people all over the world to set these receivers up and build a strong network that we can track as many planes as possible. Exactly. I mean, that's how it really took off when, as you said, we had two receivers in the Stockholm area and, and one over Gothenburg, a city in, in the south of Sweden. So that was it from the beginning. We were showing uh, aircraft movement over Sweden, essentially. Very limited usage, but we've been very fortunate throughout the history of Flight 24 that the aviation enthusiasts around the world, they're really enthusiastic about aviation. So even with that 
limited scope. We had quite a few visitors, but uh, yeah, big breakthrough when uh, we set up a network. So basically anybody with this kind of hardware could share data with Flight Radio 24. Taking it from there, the next step was really building our own hardware and sending it out to people so that they could install it. So that really grew our network too. And then we were fortunate that Raspberry Pi came along and made it much cheaper and easier for people to build small kits on their own. That's been another sort of thing that's helped us grow in terms of coverage around the world. What does the hardware look like? Is it an antenna or a satellite dish on top of your house or is it a small box? Yeah, so like there are a couple of components. So there's the radio receiver. It's just a little bit bigger than the Apple TV box. That's the receiver component. And then you have an antenna that's maybe like a, a foot tall or 30 centimeters, somewhere around there. And in return for people setting this up on your behalf, do they get anything or is it just for the love of tracking planes? So originally there was no, uh, we didn't give anything in return more than the data showing up on Flight Radio 24. But quite early on, we figured it would be good to incentivize them a little bit more by uh, giving them basically a premium subscription package. And, And that's actually how our subscription business model got started. It was originally uh, intended to incentivize people to host our receivers or have their own receivers and share data with Flight Radio 24. Fascinating. I really want to get into that a little bit later. Uh, At this point in time, then, how much coverage of the world do you have in terms of tracking planes? How many planes are you missing when you go to the map? It's hard to give a number in terms of how many planes. I mean, the obvious ones for us, it's tricky to cover the oceans uh, with terrestrial coverage, but we have satellite coverage in certain areas and things like that. But terrestrial coverage, I mean, it's hard to cover the ocean. There are parts like the Amazon that are hard to cover terrestrially as well. Any sort of populated area, we have really strong coverage. Does that mean that in some areas you'll be tracking a plane and then you lose it because you don't have a strong enough signal in a radius of where the plane is? Exactly. And typically the coverage from the uh, the antenna looks a little bit like a funnel. So in order to track aircraft that are near to the ground, you have to be really close. To the, the receiver has to be really close to the aircraft. So on cruising altitudes, typically no problem except for over the oceans. But there are areas where low altitude coverage is tricky. So yes, there are areas where uh, aircraft will go out of coverage, so to speak. Yes. Got it. And are there geographic differences in terms of how planes are set up in the signals? Are you stronger in certain areas of the world, either via you've got more people putting these receivers in the ground, or is it the planes actually have different systems, so you need to be different in other areas of the world? So, I mean, the ADSB transponders that the aircraft are equipped with, they're fairly similar. I mean, there could be some older models with some sort of software issues, but in terms of transponder strength, it's fairly similar for the larger aircraft. On our end, it's definitely trickier in less populated areas in Africa, for example, both in terms of finding people to host receivers, but also there are more issues with, say, power outages and internet coming in and out a little bit too. So it could be that we have receivers that are offline for parts of the day and things like that. And and a place like Cuba, for example, we have quite a few receivers in Cuba, but a lot of bandwidth restrictions in place for people that live in Cuba. So like, I mean, my impression is that they get internet for a certain period during the day and then it goes offline for them. So that, that obviously affects us as well in areas like that. Yeah. Makes sense. And then I'd love for you just take us back in history a little bit further than when you expanded the network to be kind of ordinary citizens like me helping. My understanding is that Flight Radar 24 started as a marketing funnel for another website that the founders had built, and it actually kind of outgrew the original idea and the business pivoted into what we see today. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I would say there's a combination, like the two factors involved, I would say that Mike and Olaf, the two founders, they're really into technology. So, I mean, they were quite keen on testing the technology itself, buying the receivers, putting them up on their, their houses. But the business value that they saw from the beginning was to try and extract SEO value from it. So they were running, uh, so it's a meta search engine for airfare. So basically the kayak or sky scanner, but for the Swedish market. So they were hoping, you know, if we put this up and 
put these aircraft moving on a map, then uh, you know people will link to this uh, web page. That's a sub page on this website. And uh, yeah, no, they did uh, for sure. The, the the only problem was that uh, there were too many visitors going to that sub page, and the concern was that uh, Google would no longer think that the website is about cheap airfare to New York, but rather flight tracking. So yeah, that was the why we put it on a separate website. And then once you had made the decision to break them out, when was kind of, I guess, in your timeline, one of the first moments you thought, oh, you know, this is going to become a, a big business? So the first sort of, the seed was sown, like, like this could turn into a business. That's uh, when the Icelandic ash cloud hit in 2010 that halted air traffic between uh, Europe and North America. So basically a lot of media, CNN, BBC, they were showing Flight Radar 24 uh, to give viewers an understanding of what's happening to air traffic. And yeah, the only reason that we were able to stay online and not crash the website was that there were no aircraft really to show. So it's basically a Flight Radar 24, Flight Radar 24 logo on top of Google Maps. So yeah, that was uh, it was perfect. Yeah, I also remember back in COVID looking at Flight Radar and just being amazed. You could see the two different before and after and it was just like a very very different world for sure for sure i'm interested in how you categorize your business from the outside we've talked about how you do it and what it is but are you a media business a data business an app is there a way that you like would you put it in a bucket how do you talk about it yeah i mean that is uh, i would say it's both a blessing and a curse just where you met it's hard to sort of put it in a bucket it's tricky because we have both the consumer side of things and the business side of the business or selling to other businesses. So it's a mix between the two. And yeah, I don't know. I've never, you know, been put on the spot to like uh, categorize it. <laughs> we just try and, and make the best of it. But I definitely agree that it's a little bit tricky to put it in a single bucket, at least that's for sure. Another way to attack that kind of problem is this concept of you ship your org chart in terms of like you, the, the more people you have in a certain part of your business, you're thinking about that part in a big way. So if, if we take your team, how is that structured? Extremely tech heavy. It would definitely be a tech company if you if you went by the org chart, for sure. Yes, uh, the vast, vast majority of their developers on the team, yes. So, I mean, we take pride in that. I mean, uh, it's some, like we, we all put the product first. And so like, we do very little traditional marketing and things like that. It's really, really about building a, a good product. That's always been in the focus and yeah. And is that the vector of competition? Because as I think about a business like yours, Flight Radar 24, and what you do, clearly the signal is something that people, if I had a receiver, I could find a signal for planes above my house. Is it either the user interface that you've built, which makes it really simple and addictive to use? Is it the breadth or the quality of the data that you get? Is it a combination of all of those things? What keeps you ahead of your competition? Yeah, you've uh, brought up a lot of good points there. So I think the... Uh... UX, the UI, we put a lot of focus there. The management team really focusing on on details. So I think that plays a big part, especially for B2C. But then also, I think this with building a um, an app that's easy to use has helped us get business users on board as well. I mean, they've started out using Flight Radar 24 as consumers and then sort of realized that, oh, these guys have uh, data services that my company can benefit from as well. So we're definitely getting a lot of business interest coming in from sort of the B2C side as well. The other thing that, I mean, yes, the data quality and the data breadth, if you want to call it that, like the better coverage definitely plays a big part. I mean, it played a bigger part in the beginning where it might have been more uh, bigger differences, but it still plays a, a big role. And I think the thing that has helped us the most really in terms of putting us ahead of competitors has been the media attention that we've been getting over the years. I mean, that's been, I was talking earlier about not doing any traditional marketing, but it's really been uh, the media using Flight Red 24 when they uh, report on aviation related incidents. Yeah, when you have a product that sells itself, that's a pretty nice place to be. Is there anything behind that in terms of the media picking up Flight Radar 24? I have to believe there are other services out there. Was it kind of first mover thing? I guess once you have the media starting to quote Flight Radar 24, then you're in a nice position because they'll probably keep doing it unless something bad happens to the business. Yeah, I, definitely a, a snowball effect to it. But also, I mean, we put a lot of thought into it too. I mean, to be honest, I think it goes back to the, the usability of the app and the website as well. I mean, we really paid attention to like, how will this look in screenshots and things like that? 
something we've given a lot of thought throughout the years when we developed the service, like how, what can we do to help media here and things like that. And also the way we handle media and uh, make ourselves available when something does happen and the data packages we put together, it's very intentional to make it easy for them to, to use Flight 24 when reporting on something related to aviation. It's a big part of what we do, and that's another area that we've sort of staffed up because this is, uh, yeah, we, we see that as, as really important to the success of the company. Yeah. Can you take me into some of the product discussions over the years? Like one obvious thing that would be super interesting to learn about is why the planes are yellow. I don't remember, to be honest, why we, I mean, we have uh, played around with having aircraft in different colors. Uh, we had uh, some blue aircraft to denote that they were coming from satellite coverage. I can talk about that as sort of a, an insight into how we discuss things. So originally, that was a way to sort of just make it more obvious that we have this cool new data source when that was new, that we're getting satellite data. And then we realized that this is causing more questions than anything else. The number of times our support team had to answer, you know, why are some aircraft blue, <laughs> even though we made that, tried to make it explicitly clear. So we had to do that a lot. So we got rid of the blue aircrafts and now they're all yellow again. And are there any other kind of insights you could share about the level of detail that you offer consumers? And obviously there are tiers depending on which subscription plan you subscribe to, but there's such a wealth of information on planes. I imagine there's more than you even share. And there's like some point at which it becomes overwhelming for consumers. And there's a point at which it doesn't feel like enough. Is there like a tipping point that you found or in terms of like what you're adding on, what you're not bringing on? So it is like you can go really deep on Flight Radar 24 and we sort of wanted that. I mean, we have a lot of very dedicated users. So, but obviously there's also the usability of it that we need to keep in mind and not scare off the casual user. So there's definitely that balance. And where should we put the focus given that we have so much information? So, and it comes down to sort of information hierarchy and visual cues as to what's more important and things like that. So yeah, that is something we've uh, we had to work on a lot over the years because there is so much information. And again, as a, I guess, media company, you need to um, give the users some insight into like, this is what's important and this is less important and tear it down from there. Another behavioral question on a similar thread. I use it and I often wonder why, why is this so addictive? Like, why am I even doing this? It serves practically no utility most of the time because I'm not flying anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just simply looking at a map with planes on and like clicking on them to see where, where they're off to. What is it that makes this product compelling that attracts, you know, millions of people on a daily basis? I mean, if I knew that, I would do more of whatever is working. <laughs> but I, I think the real-time aspect of it, I think, plays a role. I think also the volume that just like there are so many aircraft moving at the same time. I mean, stare at it long enough and it, you know, almost becomes hypnotic, I guess. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think those are two driving factors, you know, this uh, the real time aspect and just the, the sheer volume of aircraft. And then we're extremely fortunate that aviation is so appealing to so many people. I mean, it's been obvious over the years. And uh, I mean, you mentioned COVID earlier and obviously a lot less people flew during COVID. But what we realized during that time was that the vast majority of our, our users, they were coming back more for the getting a sense of what's going on up in the sky rather than coming in to track a family member flying because our usage didn't drop by very much. And the number of subscribers actually grew slightly during COVID even. So the only way for me to interpret that is that we have a lot of dedicated users that care more about just being able to track what's going on in the sky rather than being after specific flights or tracking loved ones. Yeah, gosh, that's interesting. If you cast your mind back to the early days of the product and the business, what kind of your hypothesis around the business model? You're attracting people to the website at that point in time or the app. And there are a range of different ways that you can monetize people, whether that's advertising or subscription. You mentioned a little bit around how kind of the subscription product came to be. But what were you thinking back then? And how has that really played out in terms of turning this from a flight tracking website or an app into a real business? We've uh, played around with some different models. I think we've sort of gone with the times a little bit there. I mean, when we launched the apps, we followed the business model that was common back then with one free app with limited functionality and a paid app with a one-off payment. And then, I mean, we started thinking about subscriptions kind of early. I mean, obviously, it's an appealing business model for a company with uh, recurring revenue. But the thing that held us back for quite some time was uh, actually Apple and 
I don't remember exactly when they opened up for all kinds of apps to have subscriptions, but for a long time, it was limited to streaming services and apps like that. But uh, when they did open up, we obviously gave it a lot of thought because as a bootstrapped company, like with a good revenue stream, it's always a little bit, you're a little bit scared to change things, but we we decided like we should make the switch here. So we, we I think we spent a, a full year basically neglecting the uh, existing app and just building up a subscription app and deciding what to put in the uh, free part of the app and what to put behind a paywall. And yeah, and then we released it. Um, super scary, but I mean, it, obviously, like when you start a subscription model, revenue is uh, like a fraction of what it was at first, but then it built up kind of quickly. I don't remember how long it took for us to sort of get back to the same revenue as before but maybe it took like two years a year i don't know but it, it went pretty fast and uh i mean yeah we've never looked back since and if you iterated much on what you get from the free tier to the paid tiers and then you've got a silver and a gold and then or even a business package the only thing that we've really done is to add more paid features like we haven't taken anything from the free tier from the beginning we were very adamant about the free tier being good enough for the vast majority of people given you know our crowdsource foundation we need a super strong free product to attract users everywhere in the world really where you know in a lot of cases they don't have the money to pay for a subscription so it was something that was really important to us to have a, a very strong free part of the app too yeah and then pricing is always a fascinating thing for me because I went to economics and school and then university and they talk to you about rational human beings and then it comes to pricing in real business and you sort of look around and see what other people are pricing at. How, how did you come to the pricing model that you guys have currently got? Yeah, as uh, most of the things in the real world, it was uh, 100% uh, gut feel. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There was no science behind it whatsoever. I mean, I yeah, we obviously thought about it a lot, but I mean, yes, there was no science or testing going into it back then yeah and if you were to share some wisdom in terms of turning a subscription product on or transitioning your business to a subscription what advice would you give to other folks thinking about it the first advice i would give is to do it as soon as possible i mean i wish we would have done like i think we waited a year too long like i think there was a year before we actually went ahead and started changing things. i like obviously now i I wish we could have had that year of subscriber growth back, so to speak. But it's so dependent on what you're selling. Like you should probably really consider whether or not subscription is for you. I mean, there are like there's uh, you have more of a ceiling effect with the subscription. I mean, unless you you get really good at segmenting the tiers and things like that. But it's much more of a ceiling. So that I I think that's something you should consider depending on, on what you're selling. That the there might be things there that might be better off to be outside of a subscription so you don't get that revenue ceiling from individual customers. And am I right in thinking that on the free tier, you still have advertising on there? Is that partnerships or is it simply like selling space on the website? Looking at the numbers for the last, like we have over 50 million users per month. So, I mean, with that amount of users, yeah, I mean, there's definitely the opportunity to monetize it through advertising. So we do do that. What I can say about our situation in advertising is that it would be one thing if all our users were coming from the US, it would be a very different story when it comes to monetize it through advertising, but we have an extremely international user base. So like we can basically only do programmatic, that, that's really the only thing that makes sense for us because our user base is so spread out. I think I, when I looked at sort of our top 20 markets, they make up maybe 45% of our use. So it's like an extreme spread around, which is good for us, given that we really need users everywhere in the world. But it makes it difficult to really monetize the uh, user base uh, from advertising. So yeah, makes sense. And then you've already talked about how you've got both a B2C, which we kind of just mentioned there, and then you've got a B2B range of products, I think. Can you talk to me about that side of the business? I'm guessing it came after the B2C or was it the original product? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the B2C came first. We started with a free app and a paid app. And then, you know, we had advertising in the free app and advertising on the website. So B2B, we start like, I mean, it was almost 10 years after we started, I think, with B2B. So it was more one of those things where we got so many inbound inquiries that like we have to do something with these inquiries. So that's how that was started. And that's still the uh, like it's all based on inbound really we, we take care of the inbound inquiry so we haven't built up like a 
huge sales team to you know cold call or do anything like that they ha- basically handle inbound inquiries and our customers are sort of the usual suspects that you would think of for a service like flight 24 with the aircraft manufacturers airlines airports but it's kind of cool there's a lot of customers that are more tangential to the aviation industry so a lot of central banks organizations like that using basically our data as uh, i'm assuming leading economic indicators. So we see quite a bit of that. Fascinating. And I'm guessing with the B2B, it's more a case of selling them data rather than the pretty pictures that consumers look at or I look at. Exactly. We do have a business subscription as well with many, many thousands of subscribers. So that is actually a good business for us too. But yeah, most of our business customers, they buy our data. Yes. Are they bespoke contracts then when they come inbound and they say, here's what I want the data for, and then you're just creating bespoke contracts for each one, or do you have a few packages that you just sell? Yeah, like we got a few packages. We try not to do too many things bespoke just because, I mean, we're limited uh, resources and all that. So yeah, we really try and uh, be able to reuse uh, what we have had in the past, yeah. There's one particular B2B partnership I want to talk about, and that's your relationship with the EasyJet, which is a service I fly on regularly around Europe. And you have, well, Flight Radar 24 is in their app. And so they'll show you where your plane is, why it's late. You can see where the plane is, which is great for me. I'm actually not sure it's great for them, <laughs> but I do enjoy the fact that they've got you integrated into their service. Did that come about as an inbound from EasyJet saying, hey, we would like to integrate this? Or Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have the uh, app SDK, as we call it, in a couple of airports as well. And uh quite a few discussions with uh, more airlines and airports. So hopefully more coming soon. Yeah. Well, I'd love to see it because you know I can obviously go to your app, but um, it's nice when it's in their app and often <laughs> updates before they tell you that it's going to be late. You're like, this is definitely going to be late because I can see it's only just left the airport that it's coming from. Very cool. And then a very simple question I should have asked before, in terms of people using the app versus on a website, what split does that look like? Two out of three. I would say our app users and the trend is definitely towards app users. We have a lot of loyal web users as well, but it's definitely trending towards apps. It's amusing to me that FlightRadar24 started as marketing engine for another business. And now you have a ton of traffic coming to you. You've built a pretty sizable media business on the side of what you do. You've got a million followers on Twitter, I think hundreds of thousands on YouTube. You've got a blog, newsletter, et cetera. You have all the things that makes a modern media business. How does that fit into Flight Radar 24? Do you see it as an acquisition tool to get more people to come use the product and then turn them into subscribers? Or do you see it as something to engage the super fans? Because when I go to the content, it's pretty hardcore aviation stuff. I mean, there are a couple of things that we're trying to accomplish with sort of our non-flight tracking content. So we talked about it a little bit, but we're still a lot of focus on growing sort of the flight tracking coverage around the world, meaning that there are locations where we want people to host receivers for us. So we try and include that in our content sometimes. So every time we talk about it in our newsletter, for example, we have a yeah, we have over a million newsletter subscribers. So whenever we talk about the ability to host our receivers in the newsletter, we uh, we increase the number of applications by 300%. We typically get maybe a hundred applications per day to host the receiver and like so then we get a, a couple of hundred applications when, when we post something in the newsletter. So we definitely try and use our content that way. It's also about acquiring more users. And the way we do that is if our content can get picked up by sort of mainstream media. So that's something we're, we're trying to make happen. We also get new users uh, coming in from SEO. That's coming from the content that we do. And then, as you said, I mean, I think the most typical effect of our content is sort of increased user engagement that our users are coming back more often to check our what content do do we have as well. It strikes me just throughout this conversation and thinking about your business more broadly that you offer a very core service to a huge variety of different people. And so I would love to understand from the inside who you focus on as your customer, Who, who do you generally build for and think about because it's hard as people with insider business to have too many people on your mind when you're thinking through product decisions or strategic decisions. Is there a persona that you think about? I agree with you that it can be a, a bit overwhelming if you try and have too many personas or audience groups in mind. So I try and pare it down to four that I really try and focus on. So 
keep coming back to the coverage there, like the data sharers, really important that we uh, appeal to them and get more people to upload flight tracking data to Flight 24. And we have professional users. So we've done some surveys over the years and it, it looks like around 20% of our users do work in aviation. So that's another group that we definitely keep in mind. And then the aviation enthusiasts that I talked about a bit earlier, when it, the people that helped us through COVID. That's my dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, lots of, uh, I don't know how old your dad is, but in terms of apps, I would definitely say that we skew a little bit older than a lot of other apps. I promise you he fits the model that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the fourth group there would be the casual users, the guy who wants to know if his wife's plane is on time. So those are sort of the four audience segments that I try and uh, keep in mind when we talk about what we want to do going forward. And I guess the nice thing about that is they do almost fit within the different tiers and services that you offer from free subscription business and then kind of the two different tiers of subscription. Interesting. And then a question I forgot to ask in terms of the hardware that you send out, that's clearly a very important part of the business. Is there any ongoing maintenance required there? Once you've sent someone a package, then is that it for the next 20 years or how does that work? Uh, no, no. So there's definitely a support component there. So after developers, that's almost where we have the most people working, you know, sort of on, on that setup, uh, sending out receivers and uh, supporting people with the equipment in case something goes wrong, sending replacement receivers and things like that. But the equipment is pretty sturdy. So, I mean, we definitely have receivers online that have been online for easily 12 years, I would say, yeah. And you've mentioned the media a number of times. Obviously, you don't have necessarily a marketing department per se or a big one at that. Your relationship with the media is really interesting because obviously that's where a lot of people learn about Flight Radar 24. But the flip side of that is generally when you're in the media, it's around really difficult circumstances. Just this week, we've had a plane crashed in Russia and Flight Radar 24 again has picked up in those situations. How do you deal with that kind of media attention? What's the internal line, I guess, in terms of how we react and respond to this stuff, because it's very sensitive information and situations that you're generally dealing with. I agree with you there that it can be quite sensitive. And uh, there have been some really horrible aviation incidents over the years where we haven't been involved in, but we've played a role in the media coverage, at least. So what we really try and do is just provide the data that we have, whether it's to the media or to be honest, it's a lot of the uh, the NTSBs of the world and organizations like that that are trying to figure out what actually happened. Because typically we are able to send them data a lot quicker than the other kinds of data that they can get. So uh, we do share that as quickly as possible. So it's a big part of what we do. And uh, when it comes to handling the media, I mean, we definitely stay away from speculating about why something has happened. So I think, uh, yeah, we really don't want to get into that. But it's a lot about providing media with the data that we have so they in turn can do their job and report on what's going on. Just in terms of the acronym you mentioned, I'm guessing that's one of the regulatory bodies or the kind of air crash investigation type bodies. And when you say that you can provide data faster than they can pick it up, is that just because generally, you know, the, the plane that let's say has crashed will have a responder in it, but obviously that takes time to go and find and then collect the data from there, whereas you have the real-time information. Exactly, whereas ours is available right then and there. And how much of a lag is there between the plane that I see on your app and the plane that's in the sky? So it varies a little bit, but typically between four and eight seconds. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. It's one of the technical challenges too, of course, is the, to have a lot of aircraft in real time and millions of users. So yeah. One of the fascinating things, particularly around the media, is kind of this almost gamification and enticing the media into the data that you've got. Can you explain a little bit around how you do that or the ways in which your data gets used and you kind of, you attract people to come to the website. For sure. So there are a couple of uh, crowdsourcing aspects. Like one, we already talked about the people that host our receivers or build their own receivers. So we have over 40,000 of those. The other things that are less obvious, so we have crowdsourced photos of essentially all aircraft that are flying around the world, plus most of the airports that uh, the aircraft fly to. And then I think it's two years ago now, we added a most tracked flights topless to the website and the app. So not only does that give users a reason to come back and see what other people are tracking right now, but it's also great from a PR perspective. Uh, we get a lot of local newspapers and international newspapers for that matter that 
use most tracked flights when they report on, say, a football star signing or, or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, people love a list. Am I right in saying still that the most tracked flight ever was the Queen of England after she had passed? She flew from Scotland to England? That is the most tracked flight, yes. Is it 5 million people that are watching the flight in real time? I don't remember the number off the top of my head. but <laughs> That's the number I read. Yeah. Amazing. And is there a comparison? If you kind of think, you know, we talked about how hard it is to box this business in, which, as you said, is both a blessing and a curse in terms of what it is. Is there, are there businesses or business models that you look out to that are operational in the world today and kind of think there are either pieces of those businesses that I would like to integrate into what we do, or actually they're a pretty good comparison for kind of our roadmap going forward? I think the companies that I've looked at the most historically have been crowdsourced based companies because that's such a key part of what we do. Early on, I remember looking at Weather Underground. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with them. So, no. As the name sort of implies, it's basically uh, people hosting like weather equipment. I believe it was bought by IBM eventually. Another company that I've looked at a lot, I believe they're a similar size to Flight Radio 24, uh, All Trails. So it's uh, basically an app for. Uh, going hiking and things like that. So the crowdsourced element there is that people report on the hike and things like that. So kind of similar. But I mean, it, it, like even closer to that, there are companies that do what Flight Radio 24 does, but for uh, boats, like marine traffic. So a company that we have a good context with. So yeah, talk quite a bit to them about different things. Sometimes we face same challenges and, and things like that. So yeah. Is there any potential integration with a business like that where particularly I'm thinking more so you said you're going to coverage over the oceans is particularly challenging given and also given the earth is well covered by water. Are there ways which you can get receivers onto boats or is that? Yeah, well, we, we uh, no, no. I mean, we have a couple of receivers on boats. The only problem is to do it at scale, you know, yeah. uh, that's the thing so that you cover all of the oceans. So, but yeah, no, we already have receivers on boats that are sort of going in different places of the world. Yeah. This is a leading question about, about your future, but is there a world in which it comes full circle where you think about or you end up building out the price comparison website that you had first started with? Because clearly you've got people coming to you thinking about airplanes, like a natural next destination for them would be either they want to book a next flight or they are got a flight at the moment. They're kind of in the mindset of air travel or travel at least. So is that something that has been on your radar or people out there do well enough? So, Of course, it's something we've discussed than thought about, but it's a very competitive space, this with OTAs and, and all that comparing airfare prices. So the companies that do that really well, they capture the user when they have the intent to book a ticket. Our average user probably, you know, flies more often than the average uh, person that doesn't use Flight Radar 24, but are they, do they have the intent to book a ticket when they visited Flight Radar 24? Nah, some, but probably not so many. So yeah. Fair enough. You might be better off building a game or something to kill the time while people are tracking flights and incoming. Exactly. I mean, this has been so fascinating for me as a user of your product for many years and just kind of fascinated by all things planes. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that is important or that you deal with or think about on a daily basis as it relates back to your business? No, I mean, the thing that the casual user might not always notice is the work that goes into building up the coverage. A lot of users just think that the data is probably there and they're just displaying it, but we do put a lot of effort into getting the data. I mean, that's really where a lot of the focus of the company goes, to be honest. So probably what I spend most of my time thinking about. As someone with zero tech experience, and I don't know the words to describe this, but I am extremely impressed by how quickly your website and your app, are resp how responsive they are based on like how much information and how much just sort of things are moving around on the page. There are plenty of simpler websites that work far worse than yours. So um, I appreciate it. And I really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Thank you so much for walking us through this very interesting business. Thank you. Let me just take Matt off mute. Matt, are you there? I am here. I just had a pleasure listening to that. I was not in the recording, but I got to listen to the audio file after the recording. And I was actually bummed that I missed it. I had a few things that I wanted to slot in there because I'm way more distant from this business than you are. But I really enjoyed that. I would say Frederick was typically Swedish. And I hope he doesn't mind me saying that in terms of his answers. I knew I had work to do after his first answer that was very crisp and to the point. So I was like, boy, and this was Friday afternoon for me. So there was no relaxing into the afternoon. But yeah, I had a thrill as I probably came through. I'm a fan of the product. So it was very fun talking to him.
Yes. And not to take anything away from all of the great founders and entrepreneurs who have such specific visions and such conviction and clarity and the way that they describe exactly how their story played out is so perfectly curated and articulated. And here, Frederick was a little bit more, yeah, we tried that. And yeah, I never really think about whether we're a data business or this business. There was something admirable about it because you could tell he was just very much in the trenches executing. And I don't think it's for any lack of grander vision because I'll be honest, I had absolutely no idea that there was a business behind all of that data. And I very much lived in this world for a period of time in the investing space. And I just assumed it was some type of public good that was out there, almost like government organized. I had absolutely no idea this is how it actually worked. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. And I didn't really know the extent of how deep it went, particularly on the B2B side. So it was really interesting to learn about that. You mentioned there was a few things you would have slotted in. What were those? So I want to understand the origin story a little bit better. Was Frederick out there in his backyard with one of these satellites? I picture 1970s. He's trying to pick out UFOs and he's making stuff out of tinfoil. That could be completely wrong. (laughs) I just want to know the absolute origins to all of this and how he figured out the technology that worked and that there was a group of people that wanted to do the exact same thing. He started from, yeah, we were doing this in our little nook in the woods in Sweden, but we realized we could grow from there. I almost wanted to say, all right, let's start with the very, very beginnings, the first actual satellite. There's my fault as a host, but let me try and fill in some blanks that I do know about. And so he's not actually a founder of the business. He joined in 2012. I think the business was founded in 2005 or six. And it was founded as a price comparison website. So like Kayak, if you have that over there, or it might actually be a US business for flights. And it started in Stockholm and founders of the business just love planes, I think, is the impression I get. And they weren't getting a huge amount of traffic to this price comparison website. And so they decided, oh, one fun thing that we could do to help us, particularly on the SEO side, rank higher is to build this other website that funnels people into the price comparison website. And that was what is now Flight Radar 24. And it was just them, I think, probably as hobbyists, they understood that planes had these devices that broadcast signals that you could pick up with a garage-made device. And then they were just tracking planes over Stockholm initially. And it just got more and more traction in terms of more eyeballs were going onto the Flight Radar site than actually were then converting into the price comparison site. And it got to a point at which Frederick joins the story where they were like, okay, I think we need to make this into a real business. Otherwise, Google's going to think that our price comparison website is actually a flight radar site. And so they split the two things off. I think Frederick and the founders went to school together, I think he was telling me, after we finished recording. So that was how they knew each other. And his origins is he worked for an online gambling site, I think in Canada. I think he got a bit fed up with that. But you can see the gamification and the ways in which he's used that background to really make this business hum. Yeah, absolutely. I have to ask you, when I think of flight tracking, it's very much from the investor standpoint, and it's similar to shopping malls and seeing how many people are actually in the parking lots. So you're tracking executives or private jets of companies and seeing where they go. And there are some funny stories behind all of that. But for you as a consumer (laughs) that uses this, what do you use it for? Well, so if I'm going on holiday... I'll track the plane that I will be flying on later and I'll yeah. see where it's going. And particularly if you're flying afternoon, evening. So I'll know whether it's on schedule or not. And then if there is any hint of a delay through the actual operator's site, I'll go straight to Flight Radar and make sure. The people telling you this information is always worse than actually when you go and look at the plane and see, oh, it's actually two hours late and they're telling you it's going to be an hour late. And so you can see the stuff. I would caution people. There's been an instance where I could see that the plane I was going to get on was three hours late and EasyJet at the time was telling me it was going to be an hour late. And I was like, this is crazy. I'm not going to get to the airport that far ahead of time because I know what time this plane is actually likely to take off. Was this when you missed your flight? No, no, no. That was a separate thing, which will take some credibility off this story. However, there is one risk here in that EasyJet could cancel one of the flights and redirect a plane for us to take. So you're not always 100% sure that the plane that you think you'll get on is the plane that you will actually get on. And that's what happened in this instance. Fortunately, I did turn up at the airport. But if I just went off flight radar, then I probably wouldn't have been at the airport in time to catch the changed plane. But that's how I use it. My dad is a power user in a different way. And he'll just sit there in the evening looking at what planes are in the sky, where they're going, and where they're coming from. I can understand it. It's a little bit different. But I was thinking you go to a pier some luxurious area and you look at all the yachts and you say, I wonder whose yacht that is. And you can usually look it up and you could say, ah, 
that's so-and-so's yacht or that's so-and-so's yacht. With the planes, it's a little harder. They're a little further in the sky. <laughs> higher up, yeah. <laughs> but I did think about how idyllic it would be to spend a few weeks manning the vessel out in the ocean <laughs> and being their coverage out there. I don't think I could do it as a year-round experience, but I could see a little business there where your hospitality, you're the innkeeper for the flights. So maybe there's an opportunity there and we can all spend some time out there. A Colossus Live from the middle of the Atlantic, just doing good business as well as helping flight radar track its planes. The crowdsourcing element of it is really, That's really interesting. Yeah. And it reminds me of Wikipedia to a large extent of like using people to generate the data. In response, they're not giving them a ton. They're giving them a subscription effectively for free, but they're so reliant on these people just doing it because they enjoy planes and they like the service that's been built. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's always amazing to me. Are you familiar with Waze? It's similar mm. to Google Maps. I am still confused. I was out at a dinner <laughs> a couple of weeks ago and going on my typical speech about this, who actually contributes to Waze? Yeah. I will confirm if there's a car stuck on the side of the road or if there's police ahead, but I never actually enter that in. And my neighbor seemed to suggest that he was somebody that contributed. And I was like, well, how do you actually contribute? Do you have to call a number? And he's like, no, there's a couple buttons. So I don't know if I fully believe this, but I mean, he was very convicted in saying it. And that's something where you literally get nothing. You get these points, which I don't think have any relevance, but it's more proof that that's a little bit of gamification too. You are getting points for confirming or submitting, but I don't think it does anything for you. Yeah, I've never even confirmed or denied whether there's a car on the side of the road. I just take the information and I move on. That rubs me the wrong way. That means you're very much a taker. You got to give a little bit. It's illegal to touch your phone in the car over here. So I'm not going to get in trouble with the feds just for the help of ways. If it's on a device, is it illegal? Or is it illegal to be holding it in your hand? Yeah, probably in your hand. But there must be some risk. My risk has gone up if I'm stretching it better. Do you ever touch the radio when you're in the car? No, I leave that to my passenger. Okay. All right. <laughs> turn a, a turn signal or anything. I do have to do you that. You can use your hands. <laughs> I agree. You should not be holding the phone in your hand. Fair enough. Okay. No, I, I think the crowdsourcing thing, that's probably something that exceeds my expectations consistently is seeing how businesses can tap into that and how much people just like to be a part of communities. And I think thinking about ways, thinking about flight radar, some of the others that gamify it really can get the most out of it. And I think it is cool. When I heard, oh, you have this little piece of equipment, I was like, ah, maybe I can slot one. Because we have a certain plane route that on Sundays and Tuesdays, we'll see a lot of planes, which my son absolutely loves. <laughs> and he asked me if I see the plane every time it goes by. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, maybe I can contribute here. <laughs> yeah, it's so. The other thing that I really loved was the just quick discussion on pricing. Because this always makes me chuckle. Pricing is always finger in the air, look around, what does Netflix charge? How comparable are we to what you get as a subscriber? And then we base it off of that and we'll hope for the best. And then once you've locked it in, there isn't much you can do after that. And that becomes a huge pain. And I just love how all the economic models are thrown out the window when it comes to pricing most of the time. Yeah, we did it like anybody else who just guessed. I love that just very simple approach. That was perfect. Yeah, overall, I thought it was really interesting. It was almost more like a business breakdown, I would say. And I do consider it somewhat in the media world. There's an entertainment aspect to it. There's a attention capturing aspect to it. And it was fun. And it was not something that I was that familiar with. I clearly did not understand how much of a role that they play in the overall system. So pretty cool to see. And when you track some of the stories and how they've been involved in those stories and some of them you referenced on the podcast. Pretty neat to see how ingrained they are in the actual culture of it all. Yeah, that's very true. I probably should have tried to drag out of him how impressive their actual media operation is. They have a pretty big podcast, a really big YouTube channel. They're blogging all the time. What do they talk about on their podcast? Literally anything and everything about planes. I watched on YouTube them take a flight that goes over the North Pole because people have to fly around Russia now. So if you want to go from Tokyo to Stockholm, you have to go over the North Pole. And so they document the whole journey, stuff like that. And also talking to other fellow aviation enthusiasts about the plane companies, Boeing or Airbus or some of the actual airlines themselves, anything and everything to do with planes, I believe. Very cool. And definitely a data business. Uh, I can remember reading... There were two railroad companies, one based in Canada, one based in Jacksonville, and the CEO, or at least the company's jet 
flew from Canada to Jacksonville, which is not a flight that you would expect them to be taking very often. And there was a lot of speculation around it. And it was just crazy to think about. He could have been visiting family. He could have been visiting the board of that company or the management team of that company. But it's crazy to see how much these alternative data providers can play a role in the market. 100%. And I probably should explain why I wanted to get him on making media. They have such an insane amount of eyeballs. And ultimately, that's what media businesses do. They aggregate people's attention. And this business yes. has it. And I was like interested to know what they do with that or how they upsell or how they monetize it or then where they funnel people to, particularly with the YouTube channel and the podcast, etc. Which direction are they actually traveling in? And I know there'll be some of it, but is it a top of funnel thing or is it actually just helping cement the power users into the ecosystem? I'm sure there's a ton of other things they can do. It'll be interesting to see where they go. But obviously, first and foremost, as you say, is making sure they've got good data. That is the lifeblood of this business. And obviously, it relies on millions or oh, thousands of people around the world. Also really fun. When I first reached out to him, he immediately got back and said, I'm a huge business breakdowns listener, which for me was just such a thrill. Like, you know, when you enjoy a product or a business, and then it turns out that the person who's overseeing operations over there actually listens to something that you do. It's a weird moment, but very fun. I love that. Yeah, those are my favorite moments. So that's very cool to hear. I appreciate you locking this one down and teaching me a little bit. I got a learning experience after all this. <laughs> very, very pleased about it too. How do you enjoy it? Yeah, awesome. Great stuff. That was a good one. Any other businesses in this category, I'm up for all of them. I definitely want to get the version of this, which is yachts. I know it would work a little bit differently, but maybe there's a group of people that just track which yachts are where. And I'll sign up for that. I'm happy to contribute however I can. We might be able to get Frederick to help us there. I think he knows them. Yeah, I'm sure there's a <laughs> unique inner party of people, the transportation mafia of high-end <laughs> and unique <laughs> mediums of travel. That's the crew. There must be a trucking one. That's probably something that you enjoy or used to enjoy, at least in your capacity as a transport analyst. Honestly, the trucking tracking, from my memory, it was still evolving and that's why you see with your packages, why there's so many challenges where it's like, this checked in here, this checked in here, <laughs> was checked into this facility. And that was because they were scanning the stuff. Some of the intermodal containers are trackable, but I don't think there's one clear spot. If anything, the team at FreightWaves might have it. They have a lot of cool alternative data stuff. They would know at the very least. There may be some security issues around there as well. High value items being tracked on the ground <laughs> might cause some issues. Yeah, there's a crew of guys that move <laughs> very fast and very furiously, and they've been known to take down some high-end trucks. All right, cool. Well, glad you enjoyed it, and we'll see you all next week. Next week. Let's do it. Let's do it.